0: making history his story, Derek Izzy. You're listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Once again, thank you to everyone for listening to this month's podcast. This October show will take you back in time again. Back into the olden days. But before I get into that, I'd like to thank this month's sponsor of the show, Lyft. Take a minute right now and download the Lyft app. It's L-Y-F-T. If you're ever coming home drunk from a sporting event, drunk from a party, drunk from a bar, or if you're not drunk and you just don't feel like driving, you gotta get Lyft. Now, as a special discount just for the Derek Izzy Show listeners, you can download the app, but you have to use the discount code DEREK605503. That's D-E-R-E-K 605503. That discount will only work with your first ride. And it's only for brand new accounts. So if you've got an old account, then set up a new account. Use the discount code DEREK605503. D-E-R-E-K you will get your first ride free up to $15. Now, the discount ranges depending on what market you're in. Discounts anywhere between $5 and $15. So, use that discount code Derek 605503 on your first ride and enjoy the Lyft driving service. Moses, I understand you've got a winner here for the monthly review contest. This month's review... Entitled, Great Stuff, comes from Kenny. Kenny's review comes from the great state of Texas. As a former Texas resident, I definitely miss that area. Hope to get back there sometime soon. And Moses, what did Kenny have to say about the Derek Izzy show? Good stuff, Derek. Keep it up. Looking forward to the next one. All right, Kenny, thank you for that review. If you'd like a shot at having your review read by Moses live on the air, just write a five-star review for The Derek Izzy Show, and you will be entered for a chance to have your opinion read by the great Moses Ronald. Yeah, boss, I am great. Thanks for noticing. Yeah. All right, Moses, thank you. Shut up now. Without further ado, will you get into this episode of The Derek Izzy Show? Before 9/11, there was 1911. What does that mean? 9/11 was not the first tragedy to strike New York City. Imagine a fire in a skyscraper. The fire spreads from the eighth floor, the ninth floor, the tenth floor. It seems like it's engulfing the building. Flames are coming out from the windows. People are now coming out from the windows in an effort to save their lives, jumping from the ninth story, plummeting to their deaths. This was the scene very reminiscent of September 11th, 2001. People jumping from the skyscrapers to their deaths in the hopes that it would save their life. Well, on March 25th, 1911, that's the exact scene that was witnessed in New York City. Isaac Harris started working in the garment industry. He was an immigrant who made his way over to the United States from Russia. He was a young 20-something, looking to make his way in the new world. He became friends with Max Blanc, another garment worker. Blanc was more of the entrepreneur. He had the brains To grow a business and make it into something bigger. Isaac Harris, he was a garment worker. And growing up in the sweatshops, making different types of clothing, he knew the ins and outs of the factory. He knew how the machines worked. He knew how to set up the factory. He knew how to get the workers to be productive because he was one of those productive workers. The two men entered into a partnership. The year was 1900. One of the clothing trends at the time was an item called the shirtwaist. Yeah, it sounds kind of funny. The shirtwaist was an item of clothing geared for women, but it was styled after men's fashion. Shirtwaists were looser and a little bit more liberating than the Victorian-style garments of the day, and they became very popular among the women. Isaac and Max, forming their partnership They opened up a business called the Triangle Waste Company. With Max's mind for creating and growing the business being the excellent salesman that he was, he started getting orders for customers, and they started production. The company expanded rapidly. Isaac was gifted in his knowledge of the garment industry, and the two partners were very good at penny-pinching. Isaac's knowledge allowed him to cut costs Everywhere he could find in order to increase production. And Max being the gifted salesman, got them an unlimited supply of orders. They started investing in new technology, improving the productivity. But that productivity always came down to one thing, the human element. Who was running these machines? Well, primarily teenage girls. Anywhere between 14 and upwards of 30s and 40s. These were mostly immigrant women who had come to the United States with no money and they were trying to build a life here. With limited language skills and really no tools of the trade, the garment industry was something they could go into where they could actually earn a living, if you could call it that. The working conditions back in those days were nothing like they are today. A common issue that the two partners had to endure was the theft ...of these shirtwaists by the workers. In order to prevent that theft, they kept tight security in the building. There was limited access, limited breaks, or no breaks at all. And once you got inside the building, you were there to work. There were policies at the time that required emergency exits. But the two men viewed emergency exits as a way that employees could escape with stolen goods... So those emergency exits were locked. Back in the early 1900s, the labor movement was growing in numbers. Workers were starting to form unions, go on strike, ask for better working conditions, higher wages. But Isaac and Max kept tight control over their factory. They decided to give their workers some increased wages, but they did not want a union in their factory, and they fought hard against it. And they always won. They did give in to some workers' demands, but they kept the union away. At the time, they were one of the very few garment factories that did not unionize. These two men basically came from nothing. As the factory grew and became more productive, their business grew and expanded. They started living the lavish lifestyle. They opened factories outside of New York in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania, and they started to grow in other states as well. By 1908, they were doing a million dollars in business. While this factory was located on the ninth floor of the Ash Building in New York, they purchased the 10th floor and located their administrative offices there. They were building up a reputation as the shirtwaist kings. Worker unsatisfaction seemed to be growing. The two executives were becoming richer and richer, and the only way to increase profits was to nickel and dime production, make the sweatshops more productive. Every little thing they could do, they started examining women's purses when they would leave and when they would enter to make sure they weren't stealing anything. When union picketers came outside, they hired police and security to beat the pickers and get them out of the way so their workers could work. But on March 25th, 1911, this factory would experience a tragedy. While it may have been a stray cigarette that caused the tragedy, we don't know for sure. This eyewitness account, originally published in the Milwaukee Journal on March 27th, 1911, describes what was seen. I was walking through Washington Square when a puff of smoke issuing from the factory building caught my eye. I reached the building before the alarm was turned in. I saw every feature of the tragedy visible from outside the building. I learned a new sound, a more horrible sound than description can picture. It was the thud of a speeding living body on a stone sidewalk. Thud. Dead. Thud. Dead. Thud. Dead. Thud. Dead. Sixty-two thud deads. I call them that because the sound and the thought of death came to me each time at the same instant. There was plenty of chance to watch them as they came down. The height was eighty feet. The first ten thud deads shocked me. I looked up, saw that there were scores of girls at the windows... The flames from the floor below were beating in their faces. Somehow I knew that they, too, must come down, and something within me, something that I didn't know was there, steeled me. I even watched one girl falling, waving her arms trying to keep her body upright until the very instant she struck the sidewalk. She was trying to balance herself. Then came the thud. Then a silent unmoving pile of clothing and twisted, broken limbs. As I reached the scene of the fire, a cloud of smoke hung over the building. I looked up to the seventh floor. There was a living picture in each window, four screaming heads of girls waving their arms. "'Call the firemen!' they screamed. "'Scores of them!' "'Get a ladder!' cried others. They were all as alive and whole and sound as were we who stood on the sidewalk. I couldn't help thinking of that. We cried to them not to jump. We heard the siren of a fire engine in the distance. The other sirens sounded from several directions. Here they come, we yelled. Don't jump! Stay there! One girl climbed onto the window sash. Those behind her tried to hold her back. Then she dropped into space. I didn't notice whether those above watched her drop because I had turned away. Then came that first thud. I looked up. Another girl was climbing onto the windowsill. Others were crowding behind her. She dropped. I watched her fall and again the dreadful sound. Two windows away, two girls were climbing into the sill. They were fighting each other and crowding for air. Behind them, I saw many screaming heads. They fell almost together. But I heard two distinct thuds. Then the flames burst out through the windows on the floor below them and curled up into their faces. The firemen began to raise a ladder. Others took out a life net. And while they were rushing to the sidewalk with it, two more girls shot down. The firemen held it under them The bodies broke it. The grotesque simile of a dog jumping through a hoop struck me. Before they could move the net, another girl's body flashed through it. The thuds were just as loud. It seemed as if there had been no net there. It seemed to me that the thuds were so loud that they might have been heard all over the city. I had counted ten. Then my dulled senses began to work automatically. I noticed things that it had not occurred to me before to notice. Little details that the first shock had blinded me to. I looked up to see whether those above watched those who fell. I noticed that they did. They watched them every inch of the way down and probably heard the roaring thuds that we heard. As I looked up, I saw a love affair in the midst of all the horror. A young man helped a girl to the windowsill. Then he held her out, deliberately away from the building, and let her drop. He seemed cool and calculating. He held out a second girl the same way and let her drop. Then he held out a third girl who did not resist. I noticed that. They were as unresisting as if he were helping them onto a streetcar instead of into eternity. "'Undoubtedly, he saw that a terrible death "'awaited them in the flames, "'and his was the only terrible chivalry. "'Then came the love amid the flames. "'He brought another girl to the window. "'Those of us who were looking "'saw her put her arms about him and kiss him. "'Then he held her into space and dropped her. "'But quick as a flash, he was on the windowsill himself. "'His coat fluttered upward The air filled his trouser legs. I could see that he wore tan shoes and hose. His hat remained on his head. Thud. Dead. Thud. Dead. Together they went into eternity. I saw his face before they covered it. You could see in it that he was a real man. He had done his best. We found out later that In the room in which he stood, many girls were being burned to death by the flames and were screaming in an inferno of flame and heat. He chose the easiest way and was brave enough to even help the girl he loved to a quicker death, after she had given him a goodbye kiss. He leaped with an energy as if to arrive first in that mysterious land of eternity. But her thud, dead, came first. The fireman raised the longest ladder. It reached only to the sixth floor. I saw the last girl jump at it and miss it. And then the faces disappeared from the window, but now the crowd was enormous. Though all this had occurred in less than seven minutes, the start of the fire and the thuds and deaths. I heard screams around the corner and hurried there. What I had seen before was not so terrible as what had followed. Up in the ninth floor, girls were burning to death before our very eyes. They were jammed in the windows. No one was lucky enough to be able to jump, it seemed. But one by one, the jams broke. Down came the bodies in a shower, burning, smoking, flaming bodies, with disheveled hair trailing upward. They had fought each other to die by jumping instead of by fire. The whole, sound, unharmed girls who had jumped on the other side of the building had tried to fall feet down. But these fire torches, suffering ones, fell inertly, only intent that death should come to them on the sidewalk instead of in the furnace behind them. On the sidewalk lay heaps of broken bodies. A policeman later went about with tags, which he fastened with wires to the wrists of the dead girls, numbering each with a lead pencil, and I saw him fasten tag number 54 to the wrist of a girl who wore an engagement ring. A fireman who came downstairs from the building told me that there were at least 50 bodies in the big room on the seventh floor. Another fireman told me that more girls had jumped down an air shaft in the rear of the building. I went back there into the narrow court and saw a heap of dead girls The floods of water from the fireman's hose that ran into the gutter were actually stained red with blood. I looked upon the heap of dead bodies and I remembered these girls were shirtwaist makers. I remembered their great strike of last year in which these same girls had demanded more sanitary conditions and more safety precautions in the shops. These dead bodies were the answer. And just like that, 146 people were dead. Unable to escape through the emergency exits that were locked, they chose to jump out the windows. Some chose to jump out the windows rather than face the fiery flames. The fire truck hoses and ladders, unable to reach the ninth floor of the building, leaving the firemen helpless to stop the blaze. After the tragedy was over, the fire marshal concluded that the likely cause of the fire was the disposal of an unextinguished match or possibly a cigarette butt in a scrap bin. A scrap bin that held two months' worth of cuttings by the time the fire had started, because the scrap bins had not been recently cleaned. Of the 146 people that died in the fire, approximately 62 leapt from the building to their death. Following this tragedy, charges were brought against Isaac Harris and Max Blanc. Charges of first and second degree manslaughter. Now, manslaughter charges are difficult to prove in a case like this, and our two executives had a very good lawyer. In order to help prove manslaughter, you're basically having to prove that Blanc and Harris knew that the exit doors were locked, and locked them intentionally during working hours. After all the testimony, this was very difficult to prove during the courtroom, and the two men were found not guilty. A wrongful death suit was then filed in civil court, and the plaintiffs they were given compensation in the amount of $75 for each deceased victim. The insurance company, because the two men had the factory insured, the insurance money paid the men about $400 per deceased victim. So in the end, while they did lose their factory, they made a profit losing their factory. Several years later, Max Blanc once again was arrested for locking exit doors to his factory during work hours. He was fined a total of $20, basically a slap on the wrist. In 1913, the two men moved the Triangle Shirtwaist Company to a bigger location, and they continued business. In 1914, they were fined again, sewing fake Consumers League labels into their garments. Those labels certified that the garments had been manufactured under good workplace conditions. In 1918, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company closed down. While Harris and Blanc had profited from the insurance payment, they were never able to recover the profit levels that they were obtaining before the fire. Their reputations being severely damaged, the two men parted ways. Max Blanc continued in business as an executive, owning several other companies. Isaac Harris went on his way to become a tailor. As a result of this fire, business practices were changed on a national basis. Outward swinging exit doors, sprinklers being mandatory in high-rise buildings, those are all results of the fire that changed America. In subsequent interviews, Max Blank and Isaac Harris actually claimed that their building was fireproof, and it had been approved by the Department of Buildings, but there was no evidence of this. What happened to the men after they parted ways? I'll leave you to find that out on your own. Did they continue in success, or did they die a death that's similar to those of their employees? Was vengeance brought upon them by the family members of those deceased? I don't know. I was unable to find much information on them after the fire. Many of the documents of the time have now been destroyed or lost and very little remains as far as evidence of their fire and the trial and what happened after the trial. But for 90 years... The Triangle Shirtwaist Company stood as New York's deadliest workplace disaster, March 25th, 1911. Before I leave you, I will leave you with some interesting news. There was a survivor of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, Rose Friedman. Last location, Beverly Hills, California. She died on February fifteenth, two 2001, at the age of 107. She was 17 at the time of the fire. She survived the fire by following the executives up to the roof of the building. And now you know the rest of the story. Thank you for listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Remember to support our sponsors. Check out the Facebook page, Derek Izzy Show on Facebook. All of our episodes are broadcasted there in the Facebook feed. You can share them with your friends. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything to share. And you can spread the good word of the Derek Izzy Show. Remember to write a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're selected, Moses will read your review on the air. If you need a ride somewhere, check out Lyft. Use code Derek, D-E-R-E-K, 605503. Get your first ride free up to $20. And it only works for your first ride. So if you've already used Lyft, you need to set up a new account. Use it for your first ride. Derek, D-E-R-E-K, 605503. Good day.